Welcome back to the Global Inquirer. We are an undergraduate research podcast based out of the University of Virginia, bringing you stories from across the world to explain how global trends are impacting real lives and international politics. We are sponsored by the UVA International Relations Organization. I'm your host, AJ Lorienti. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with third year foreign affairs and econ major, Reese Kaplan, about the ongoing war in Ukraine more than a year after Russia's invasion in February 2022. Reese, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Pretty good. So let's get into my questions for you today about the war in Ukraine. First off, let's begin by talking about the Russian public and how. what is the Russian public's perspective at this point in the war? Well, I'm going to share with you some of the clips I got from my interview with Professor Kunikovich. I think the point that he stressed, and it's very logical, is that it's a differentiated entity, just like the United States. It has split opinion, even though obviously a very different regime in a different government. This was never a very popular war, but it's also not an unpopular war. So it, was ne- it wasn't super supported at the beginning. There wasn't a lot of push to do it. It took people by surprise. But it's been very difficult to speak out actively against it. Kind of going off that, Putin and the Putin regime wants all Russians to get the same information. So we've talked about some different opinions, how the public is split. They obviously want to change that split of opinions to support the war cause or the military intervention, special operation cause by giving them all the same information. This information that they're trying to use to influence the public is meant to resonate with familiar stories. So obviously we know Russia, formerly the Soviet Union, obviously with some notable losses, specifically Ukraine, um, they're using familiar stories specifically from World War II that will resonate with the public. So when we talk about denazifying Ukraine, obviously it seems absurd to us to talk about denazifying not only in the 2020s, but against a country that has a Jewish president. But when Russia looks west, it remembers the Nazis. I mean, 27 million people dead in the Soviet Union for World War II. It was a catastrophic event. And when you talk about these stories, it's something that will resonate with people on a very deep level. Yeah, so that's, that's a good question. It's also a really hard question to answer because the Russian public is a very differentiated entity, right? And We can think about what that question would sound like if we applied it to the U.S. What's the American perspective on anything? It's going to be split along party lines, along lots of other lines. Russia is sort of in the same boat. But speaking broadly, this was never a very popular war. This is not a war that had a lot of supporters at the start. There wasn't a large contingent pushing for this before the invasion. It took everyone by surprise in the West and also largely within Russia itself. And so the state apparatus has had to fight against that. And they have because they've been very conscious of the need to maintain support, to drum up support. So the Russian propaganda machine 
media apparatus, they have been in overdrive for the past year and a half. One of the ways they've tried to do it is by controlling the media. And this is not something that started in 2020. This has been a long process of bringing the media to heel, bringing it under state control. But we saw in the early days of the war a very deliberate attempt to quash some private media stations, to suppress alternative or oppositional networks that had been allowed to operate for years. And that is very much by design, right? The Putin regime wants all Russians to get the same narrative about the war. They don't want them exposed to much of what is actually happening, so much so that this is not, in fact, being termed a war in Russia. This is a special operation. It is a crime to refer to it as a war. That has an effect because the vast majority of Russians have access to state media alone. They are exposed to this narrative. It is also a narrative that has, is carefully chosen to resonate with some familiar stories about Ukraine. One of the oddities for us right in the West was why Putin talked about Nazis and Ukraine and denazifying Ukraine, right? That seemed to make no sense. It has a Jewish president. Well, that is a narrative that borrows on Soviet discourse. When the Soviet Union took control of Ukraine after World War II, it claimed that it needed to denazify it. There was also a lot of talk during the Cold War of keeping the Nazis from coming back to power. There was an attempt to kind of tar capitalism with the brush of Nazism. And so for lots of Russian audiences, some of the stories spun about Ukraine that this is a country under uh, Nazi rule, that it is a country under Western control, that it is a form of nationalism run wild. These narratives have been circulating for decades and part of the state's attempt to control the public response to the war is to use familiar language, use familiar rhetoric to kind of prevent people from seeing this conflict for what it really is. So that's kind of one side, one aspect of, of the state response. Another, and I alluded to the suppression of media channels, has been the suppression of dissent, right? There have been thousands of Russians who have chosen to leave, who have been forced to leave, and even more have been intimidated into silence, where the regime has made clear, and there was a headline this morning, right? Dissidents sentenced to 25 years. This is an attempt, right, a very transparent attempt to say we will not brook any criticism. We will not tolerate any kind of open expression of disagreement. And that has the effect of not only stopping people from speaking, but also stopping people from hearing criticism, right? Stopping this from snowballing, from spreading. That's an immense part of um, the state's agenda here. And the final thing I'll say, right, is the Russian state has also tried very hard to limit the real costs of the war to faraway regions, and especially to ethnic minorities. This has worked in many ways like a classic colonial conflict, where empires love to send certain colonial populations to fight other colonial populations to do their dirty work for them. Russia is doing exactly that now. There have been Chechen minorities, right, lots of other ethnic groups that are being sent into Ukraine and that are dying at disproportionate rates. And the flip side of that is that the human costs of war are felt much less in Moscow, in St. Petersburg, in big cities. 
this is a deliberate effort to manage public opinion. So very roundabout way to getting to what you asked, right? But the kind of short answer is Russian public opinion is uh, being very, very carefully managed in order to prevent open hostility. Uh, it's still, I wouldn't say, a very popular war, but it's also not an unpopular war because of all these efforts that the Putin regime is taking. Dictatorships don't rely on, on formal representation, right? But they rely on passive acceptance. In fact, that is much more important for a dictatorship than it is for a democracy. You can have lots of dissatisfaction within a democratic system and be able to process that dissatisfaction because you have institutional structures for disagreement, for changing governments, for changing the party line. That is not the case in a dictatorship. And one of the big problems dictatorship, dictatorships face is not only managing public opinion, but also learning about public opinion in the first place, tracking it, measuring it, because they are so dependent on this passive acceptance on a lack of opposition. The greatest fear for any dictatorship is that you will have, right, not that you'll lose an election, you don't have to worry about that, but that you will lose support, that you will be faced with more and more discontent, and you have very few opportunities, very few measures for managing that discontent, other than violence, brutal suppression, other than losing face, it's actually very hard for a dictatorship to come face to face with broad unpopularity. And the Soviet Union is a case in point, right? The Soviet collapse is in part a product of a loss, not necessarily of, of public faith. It's not that it was ever a popular system, but a, an incredible upsurge in open protest, hostility, which is something that dictatorships, I think, really can't handle. Moving on more to the battlefield itself, how do you see this conflict going in terms of both goals and just a broader end game for both sides? Well, this is where it gets a little bit concerning. Obviously, the war itself concerning, but this turns the dial up in terms of your level of concern. Because it's hard to imagine a real end game. It's not particularly a strategic conflict and that there's something specifically you can gain and that there are no concrete objectives. It was described to me as an ideological conflict in terms of how Russia sees itself and the world order. Specifically, the war is not wholly about Ukraine. And I think this has been stressed in the United States as well, but it's about the international system. It's about how the world is going to be organized, and specifically Russia's role in the organization of the world. So specifically, Professor Kunikovich has doubts on a peace, and that there are no practical objectives on either side to compromise on. What is the kind of end game here, right? What could happen on the battlefield, and how does it play into the eventual um, resolution of the conflict? And that is really tricky because I think it's quite hard to imagine a real endgame to this conflict, whether on the battlefield or 
through diplomatic channels. And that has to do with the nature of this war. You know, this is not a, I don't think, a strategic conflict. This is not a case of Russia pursuing concrete objectives in Ukraine that can be satisfied. This is, I think, an ideological conflict. This has much more to do with how Russia sees itself and how it sees the world order. In that sense, the war is not really, certainly not wholly about Ukraine. It really is about the international system. And that's why I have doubts about the possibility of something called peace in this war. I don't see this as a conflict that can be resolved through a peace. Uh, I don't think there are practical objectives on either side on which there can be compromise or negotiation or agreement. I think we can see ceasefire, which we've seen in the past. We can see a kind of long simmering conflict, which this has also been, right? One thing to note about the Russian war on Ukraine is it didn't start last year. This is not a conflict that's gone on for one year. This has been going on since 2014, when Russia invaded and took over the Crimea, when it took over, or at least tried to take over chunks of Eastern Ukraine. The war has been going continuously since, and there have been periodic ceasefires, mostly disregarded. There has been, right, kind of lower intensity fighting. This might you asked about the battlefield, this might settle into a war of that kind. And it may drag on for, well, we're nine years in, right? It's certainly easy to imagine nine more or even more. And I think, you know, the real question, and this maybe anticipates some of your future questions, but the real issue is the objectives that Russia is pursuing in this war, right? As I mentioned, I don't think it's about controlling a specific piece of territory. I don't think it's about achieving a particular policy outcome. I think, you know, there are two broad aims based on what we can deduce, right, of the Kremlin's behavior. It's to bring Ukraine into Russia's orbit, and it is to use Ukraine as a kind of buffer zone against the West. And both of these objectives, I think in many ways, date back to the fall of the Soviet Union. That is, I think it's impossible to overstate how traumatic that was for Russian identity and for the Russian state, right? When the Soviet Union collapses in 1991, Russia ceases to be three things that it had been for decades and that were central to what it was, right? It stops being a superpower. It stops being an empire, or at least it's a much impoverished empire. And it stops being a systemic alternative to the West, right? The world's first communist state, something different from the liberal democratic order. All of a sudden, that just goes poop. And that leaves Russians with an incredible sense of loss, right? Obviously, loss in status, loss in importance, loss in terms of personal experience, right? It's an incredibly devastating um, process, the end of the Soviet Union in terms of life expectancy, in terms of fall of uh, incomes, it's crushing. And I think a good deal of Vladimir Putin's platform has been, to put it in American terms, to make Russia great again, right? To restore Russia to some of that status, and especially to all of those um, 
all of those elements to make it a superpower, to make it an empire, to make it a systemic alternative to the world order. Um, I think, you know, there's a few reasons why Ukraine has been at the center of that push. This is kind of getting into my jam, right? The historical interconnections of, of Russia and Ukraine. Um, certainly, Ukraine was a major part of the Russian Empire dating back into the 17th century and before. It was also one of the constituent members of the Soviet Union. So it's present at the founding. It's the second largest member, original member after Russia. And it's also integral to this longstanding Russian goal of creating a buffer zone, or at least expanding a buffer zone, right? The reason Ukraine looks as it does today is because in 1939, Russia, the Soviet Union, chopped off large territories of Poland and integrated them into what is what was the Ukrainian Socialist Republic. This was part of the Hitler-Stalin Pact. It was effectively ratified after the war in, in, at Yalta and Potsdam. And that buffer zone from the West is, I think, part of Russia's motivation for trying to take over Ukraine once again, right? I think, you know, for all of those historical reasons, Ukrainian territory has been right at the center of this Russian goal of recapturing a global role of becoming a world player or becoming again a world player. And with that in mind, right, I think this is where it's hard for me to see the possibility of peace, the possibility of some kind of settlement, because those goals all go well beyond possessing some chunk of territory in Ukraine. In that sense, the question you first asked about the battlefield, you know, I wish I knew more and could predict better how that will unfold. But I think this is a, a conflict where the category of peace is a lot less relevant than the category of defeat, right? I think this is a conflict where defeat is likely to be the final settlement one way or another. I mean, of course, it's not a very it's not a very bright outlook but it's good to really get down to the facts on these sort of things a related question and you touched on this briefly how do these goals translate into territorial games more specifically well ultimately what seems to be the russian goal is to establish ukraine as some sort of buffer obviously i've mentioned there's not a concrete goal in that how exactly do you turn Ukraine into a buffer? Because there's this problem of ethnicity within Ukraine, whereas we talk about Crimea and the Donbass being more heavily ethnic Russian and Russian-speaking areas. That doesn't necessarily mean that all of those people love Russia and want to orient Ukraine towards Russia or even join Russia. But there is that aspect of the places Russia is likely invading are near their frontiers, and it's the place where you're likely to have people that are more Russian friendly. So the more Russia encroaches on that territory, Ukraine, which is to a certain extent a democracy, but as we've mentioned, any state has to face public opinion, becomes more Ukrainian, more proportionately filled with people that want to orient towards the West, that didn't look during the Cold War or even now, they didn't look towards Moscow, they looked towards Warsaw and Vienna or farther west in Europe 
when they look to the future. So on top of that, there's the fact that Russia has invaded and people don't like being invaded and getting shot at. And that's going to make you not like Russia as much if you're a Ukrainian citizen. So the annexation of Crimea changed Ukrainian politics to become more nationalistic and to look away from Moscow. And now that ship has sailed. It's just looking so much away from Moscow because they're seen as invaders. So the idea of Russia converting Ukraine into a buffer state is complicated by the fact that they're going to have to deal with, even if they succeed in controlling all of Ukrainian territory, which seems unlikely at this point, in continuing to control Ukraine. So that's, again, where this gets dangerous, because it has transformed Ukrainian identity. Well, you're right. You know, Russia has already annexed Ukraine and Crimea, right? Those are those are Russian controlled territory. Uh, in the near term, it's hard to see that changing. But you're also right that annexing them has changed the story, right? Has absolutely changed the nature of Ukrainian politics, not only because there are certain, let's say, pro-Russian voters in those regions, but also because the possibility of a pro-Russian vote has more or less evaporated, right? So Ukraine is a very recent state. It's It has a long history of nationalist striving, but as an independent nation state, I think it's really only existed since 1991, right? In its modern form, certainly in this, the way it looks on the map today, right? Ukraine is a product of so many of those Soviet policies that we alluded to. And like a lot of post-Soviet states, like a lot of new nation states anywhere, you post-independence Ukraine really struggled with identity, with creating a common sense of nationhood for a state that was pieced together from so many different parts. And we saw this in the voting record, especially in the 21st century. Ukrainian elections have been bitterly contested and bitterly divided, right? Again, in ways that are fairly familiar to us in this country. And the biggest object of debate was a question of orientation, right? Do you orient to the West? Do you orient to the East? And the fault lines there are more complex than we imagine, right? Uh, it's certainly more than an ethnic divide. Sure, there are there is a large ethnic Russian population in Ukraine, at least the pre-war territory of Ukraine. In other words, people who considered themselves Russian. But that was still a minority, right? Most Ukrainians considered themselves Ukrainian and yet voted in different ways. It was more than a linguistic split. Most Ukrainians are bilingual. It's not easy to map political divisions onto linguistic divisions. It's not a religious split. It really came down to a kind of cultural and historical split, right? Basically, where did you look to? Did you look towards Moscow? Did you look towards Warsaw and Vienna and, and the West? And one thing that this invasion, first 2014 and now 2022, one thing that these invasions have done is to completely change the question, right? To transform Ukrainian politics. Uh, opinion polls, I haven't tracked it for a little bit, but in the first months of the war, you could see an immediate drop off in terms of support for a Russian orientation, uh, in terms of support, uh, you know, a real upsurge in terms of support for EU membership, or at least closer ties with the EU. And it's not only because Russia controls certain territories, 
it's because, sure, there were plenty of Ukrainians who had preferred a Russian orientation for economic, cultural, all sorts of reasons, who didn't want to be invaded, who wanted an independent, sovereign Ukraine, right? Once you invade with an army, that changes the way people think. And there is no going back to those debates, right? There is no independent, sovereign Ukraine that aligns itself voluntarily with Russia. That ship has sailed. And so one effect of this war has been to transform Ukrainian identity, to make Ukrainian identity increasingly hardened against Russia, increasingly separate from Russia, and increasingly oriented towards the West. And I think that is a massive change that won't be undone um, in, in the near future, right? These are generational shifts that we're seeing. So to a large extent, it is beyond territory and there's this paradox of territory. That concludes part one of our Ukraine war analysis episode. Thanks again to Professor Konakovich of the History Department. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider leaving a comment and liking us on Facebook.